But first, let's begin a new series of Fry's English Delight. This week, Stephen Fry looks at the gulf between how we feel and how we express it. To be honest, I just feel... How can I explain? Oh, words fail me. Sorry. Yes, words fail you. Us. If only I knew how you feel, and vice versa, but of course, how could I? Or you? Unless... Well, unless we found the words to tell each other. But we can't. Not always. This week I did have something interesting to say about, um... Cognitive and generative linguistics and emotional brain networks, but... I'm feeling a bit strung up, actually, so instead I'm just going to talk about some basic emotions, the kinds of mental states which would once have been referred to as either passions or affections. Happiness. Disgust. Surprise. Fear. And anger. Emotions are proof of our humanity. Our mixed-up, sometimes overwhelming and complex feelings are what make us who we are as a species. And language, as an activity, also defines humanity. But there's a mismatch between the two, isn't there? Professor Stephen Pinker, Harvard psychologist and cognitive scientist. There is a mismatch between language and emotion because language is digital. We've got discrete words. We string them one after another, whereas emotions are analog. We can experience mixtures of anger and fear and uh, jealousy and pride. And uh, words often are crude approximations to the analog mixture of feelings that we're uh, undergoing at any one time. It's this crude approximating which can make us feel lost for words, drowned in the confusing tides of affections that are welling up inside and just too complex for our frustratingly limited vocabulary. England, England, Lord Nelson, Lord Babybrook, Sir Winston Churchill. And you can hear the tension between words and emotions in the delight felt by the sports commentator Björger Lillulilen after Norway beating them 2-1 in a World Cup qualifier in 1981. So what other tools do we have to give expression to our unruly emotions? Aside from emotion words themselves, like I'm really mad at you, we have a tone of voice. There can be sarcastic intonations, there can be uh, angry ones, there can be uh, pleased ones, and, and that is an analog component to language that's grafted onto the inherently digital nature of words strung together in sentences. There's even evidence that that component of language, the emotional tone of voice, is handled in different parts of the brain than the ones that control words and syntax. Even the parts of the brain that control the intonation and stress and rhythm that are necessary for grammatical expression are different from the parts of the brain that control the intonation and rhythm and, and stress for emotion. And Stephen Pinker's theory that different parts of the same organ, the brain, are responsible for simultaneous expression of emotion and language suggests we have to maintain a continual balancing act of point and counterpoint. Sure, you can have language without emotion, and emotion without language. Neither option's much good on its own, though. We can hear polyphony, several sounds going on together in music. In speech, though, you hear two elements, voice and emotion, combining to create just one sound. 
These days, of course, we prefer something a little ill-tempered in both music and language. It's 2 a.m. in Los Angeles and time to wake up a man who put an emotional word in his name. John Lydon, formerly Rotten. I'm not here. I'm not available. Who's this? What do you want? <laughs> um, Johnny, it's Stephen Fry here. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to me? Getting me up this time of the morning. I'm investigating a very interesting <laughs> subject in which I think you may be uh, something of an expert. Uh, that's the nature of emotion in language. No. And you've written an autobiography whose title is Anger is an Energy. How do we really use language so that people know we're not faking it? Well, I mean, you know, at age seven, I almost lost my life completely. I went into a coma. I mean, when things came back, they came back in, in not all in one big tidal wave, but I'd say kind of dribbles over the top of a dam. And the concept of anger being an energy to me was because my parents were told to, uh, to not mollycoddle me, to not let me wallow in self-pity, but to keep me angry, and that that, that would bolster somehow uh, uh, my previous life. That anger has been my energy ever since and I found a perfect platform at that time which was the Sex Pistols to voice an outrage. Johnny do you think that uh, as a singer part of your role is to give expression to vital human emotion? It be, yeah it became that way accidentally uh, I mean I, I became a singer you know, just by like, a t-shirt which stated I hate Pink Floyd on it so I suppose from there on in, I, I was the accidental tourist as a singer. But over the years, what I've learned to do is now is not hone in on specific targets like governments, religions, politicians, but to start looking inside myself internally. And hopefully uh, that being a learning experience for said audience, what I love is to absolutely go into an emotion fully. Yeah. And th those songs shapeshift according to the, uh, the vibrations that an audience transfer to you. And, and you can't help but end up with a wrinkled puss because you believe in what you're doing. What, what we could call laugh lines or cry lines. I mean, I'm full of them, but thank God for them. Yes. And so even when dealing with great tragedy and some of the songs are about terribly painful things to me, there's still a, there's a relief therapy in it. Sometimes we just don't have the words to express fully the emotions we're trying to, to no, transfer. Absolutely. Or duplicate or, 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 mm. or whatever. And, and, and music helps there, no end. Of course, we're supposed to learn how to balance language and emotion. Indeed, the language of emotion is a significant factor. For example, dear listener, I told you I was feeling emotional today, didn't I? You don't mind me calling you dear, do you? I mean, if I wrote you a letter which started that way, you wouldn't bat an eyelid. But if we met and I started to call you dear, you'd think it was a bit odd, wouldn't you, dear? Dearie. Hmm? This, what we call phatic language, has an emotional purpose too, doesn't it? A calming one, emphasising sharing and agreement. But not everyone can share so easily. The kind of autism I have is called Asperger's syndrome. I get very sensitive and I can't control it. And sometimes it's a bad thing because all the other kids are laughing when I'm just crying, screaming at things that they're not. I don't like saying certain words because they just make me feel all 
tense and unhappy. Quite a lot of people they don't have much understanding about it. They don't mean to be mean, but it does hurt my feelings because of my sensitivity. That was Rosie from the archive there. And this is Dr Rebecca Chilvers from Great Ormond Street Hospital, who works with children like her. There's a common misconception, I guess, that people with autism don't talk about emotions or at least don't experience emotional states. And what we know, actually, is they, they do experience a range of emotional states, but they find it very difficult to put those states into words. So what you tend to find is individuals who can put perhaps one state into words that just describes a general state of arousal. So for example, they might say, I feel stressed, and when I'm happy, I feel less stressed. Ranging right up to those, you have very eloquent, but very idiosyncratic use of language. So they come out with these beautifully rich, imaginative descriptions of emotional states. So if you think about happiness, a six-year-old I saw recently said, it feels like you have imagination inside you and you really want to play it out. You can get very physical descriptions, for example, talking about anger as saying, yeah, I push my lungs up and I pretend to breathe fire at them, which is incredibly evocative of that sort of physical feeling that one would get. And when I completely lost it, I would sort of lose my vision. I'd be able to hear, but I wouldn't see. I'd be seeing red, you might say. If I had a Viking berserkers, I'm twice the trouble of them. People figured I had an anger problem. They continuously it, it taunted me, goaded me. Most of them called me a bear. I was feared, I was hated. It wasn't fun. It wasn't fun at all. Ben there, also from the archive, comparing his experience of being angry to the trance-like fury of the wargaming Norse berserker warriors. Brilliant. One of the difficulties is trying to help young people with autism work out what is going on internally for them and help them put some words to that. Um, there's a nice example from an eight-year-old boy who was having a range of difficulties and he said, I cannot read inside of me, which is very illustrative of that difficulty that he felt this huge build-up of arousal and, and his emotional state, but he couldn't understand what it was. And that's so much a part of the language of emotion, finding the perfect expression for our own unique state in an attempt to narrow the gap between the feeling and the words. They find it very difficult to put things into context. They use quite stereotyped or repetitive language. They can borrow phrases from other people. So that's another really interesting thing you can see when they talk about emotions. They, they might say something like, um, going back to happiness, oh, everything's hunky-dory. And it's almost like they've just taken that phrase and they've inserted it into their conversation with you. But you can see that it doesn't really belong to them. So part of the work we do therapeutically is trying to help young people match up when you feel that your heart is racing very quickly. This is what we call anxiety and help them start to make those associations. And when it comes down to it, many of us struggle to bring together feeling and language. So what can we do? Well, for one, we can delegate the job to special people from a tribe we call poets. The plight of a people who have forgotten their myths and imagine that somehow now is all that there is is a sorry plight. All isolation and worry, the life in your veins, it is godly, heroic. You were born for greatness, you can believe that, you can know it, you can take it from the tears of the poet. 
the raw emotion of the poet Kate Tempest. And here she is in an interview trying to describe what she does. You know, a poet is, a, is somebody who lives so strongly and so tenderly and in such a full way that they have to sing experience and they, ha they have to turn to the page uh -huh. to make these kind of maps which direct the reader to this moment, this moment which is so bright and vivid and everything is like, you know, <laughs> all the time. But then somebody else will think of a poet and it will be somebody who's really refined and still and very learned. Or somebody else will think of somebody in a beret, sitting down smoking a fag, you know, whatever, like. But my point is, it's such a strange, convoluted term. It's one thing to feel and even speak our emotions, you see, and quite another to translate all that into writing. Isn't it, John? Well, you, you have to lay off the flowery language. When I'm writing, it's subject matters that are very close and personal to me, but uh, what I do is I, I run a song in my head, the idea, for, for a long, long time, and so it's all stored up there in a Robin Williams kind of chaotic way. Yeah. But when it comes to actually putting it onto paper, by that point, I've cut out the flowery language and I'm, I just want it to be concise and to the point and accurate without too much detail. That's the difficult part of songwriting, but that's the point where I love it the most. Still keeping the message, but without pontification. You've, you've said that being a frontman of a band lets you express proper emotions. I would hope so. I mean, uh, I like the working class, you see. I find it a fascinating thing that I was born into. Yeah. We're volatile. We're... we're we feel our emotions, yet seem to be denied a language to express that in. Well, I found one. It's an endlessly interesting subject, that of, of how we use language in order to beam out some sense of emotional contact, which is what we all yearn for, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, none of us like to be alone. No. What we're all seeking, really, is each other's company. You know, you're not born alone. Although you feel alone, as soon as they, they, they pull your ankle first out, out of uh, the deep chasm, you're screaming and shouting and, and somebody's slapping you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful introduction to, into humanity, isn't it? Wrote a song about it. <laughs> a powerful piece of text needs something even more to make it emote. It needs a recipient, a relationship. My darling... I long to write you a love letter tonight. You are all about me. I seem to breathe you, hear you, feel you in me and of me. A quivering Catherine Mansfield writing to John Middleton Murray in 1917. Didn't they do it well back then? Or what about this from Vita Sackville West to Virginia Woolf in 1926? I am reduced to a thing that wants Virginia. I just miss you in a quite simple, desperate human way. So this letter is just really a squeal of pain. It's incredible how essential to me you have become. Intense intimacy from a distance through written squeals of pain. Our contemporary equivalent is, of course, a quick text fired off to a loved one. Love ya, chickpea, sealed with a flock of X's. So where else might we find this scripted emotional skill? Arousing editorial involving a call to uh, collective action, 
a uh, threatening note or letter, a uh, note of apology, a note of condolence. All of them have to convey emotion without the mournful or angry or staccato or cooing tone of voice that helps the communication along when when it's face-to-face. However, a skilled writer forces the reader to simulate that in his or her mind's ear as the reader is, is going along. And we can't process even written text without a little voice uh, narrating it in our minds. And what if that little voice wants to talk about something that arouses strong personal feeling? I'm not talking about love here, but something else. Over now to the restaurant review section of one of the world's favourite websites, TripAdvisor. Sorry, TripAdvisor. It's no wonder that linguists have made some interesting connections between the language of food and mood. I'm Dan Jarafsky. I'm professor of linguistics and computer science at Stanford University. What we found is that when people write a one-star review, they use the language of trauma, which is to say precisely the same words used by people writing about a tragedy, like the death of a loved one. They tend to use the pronouns we or us or ourselves to emphasize a collective sense of grief or solidarity. And that's exactly what we see in these one-star reviews. We see phrases like, we were ignored, the waitress yelled at us, none of us will ever go back. So it's really a secret window into the psyche of the person writing the review rather than a fact about the food. The waiter was clearly schooled at the Academy of Resentful Catering Staff. Everything about him was hateful. Another table actually left mid-dinner, similarly dazed and traumatised. You can see some of this emotional nature also in positive reviews. So we looked at what people say when they like a restaurant, and it turns out it depends a lot on the price of the restaurant. So in expensive restaurant, reviewers use words like seductively seared foie gras or very naughty deep-fried pork belly. So they're talking about sex and orgasms. We ate voraciously. Crab claws rammed with the sweetest meat. Slow braised beef with a silken horseradish. We were speechless, salivating. Whereas when a reviewer likes a cheap restaurant or cheap foods, they talk about addicting wings or craving the French fries. So with these junk foods, we're embarrassed. We talk about food as an addiction. You know, by placing the blame on the food, it's like we're distancing ourselves from the sin of eating these fried or sugary snacks. The guilty language of denial. Of course, the junk food emotion of modern peer-to-peer communication started with colon, close brackets, the first pictorial expression of feeling which in turn led to the increasingly diverse hieroglyphic language of the emoticon. A vomit face is a very, very highly requested emoji for some reason. Another one is an eye roll emoji. I'll get email every day about this, please. Put in an an eye roll, I need to roll my eyes. This is Jeremy Burge, founder of Emojipedia, a kind of Académie Française for your smartphone. Here's one that I particularly like to use. The the eyebrows, they're sort of raised a little, the face is frowning, and there's just a single teardrop falling out of its eye in that one. I will use that to explain to somebody that I have heard them. A recent study showed that 72% of 18 to 25 year olds found it easier to express their feelings in emojis than with the written word. In the past people might have used exclamation points or other ways to sort of really emphasize that you're actually being cheeky or friendly and having an emoji just allows you to really sort of clarify exactly the tone you're going for. 
I mean, there have been studies done that have shown that based on emoticons in particular, that our brain doesn't just interpret them as that's a smiley face emoticon, or in this case, a smiley face emoji, that we actually will get that feeling, the same feeling as seeing somebody who is smiling at us or frowning at us. That's the key to human communication, that often people find they do prefer face-to-face -face meetings because they can see how somebody's looking, how they're feeling. So, John, what about you? Are you partial to an emoji? No, I'm not. In fact, I despise it. And it's a form of cell phone and internet communication that I think uh, is devoid of communication. It does tell you quite a lot, though, about the character of the personality that you're dealing with, that it sends messages to you using emojis, is that uh, they can't communicate quite properly. It's eliminating it to cartouche. The trouble is, emojis are at best fatic and at worst deceitful. That smiley yellow face. No wonder it's been sequestered for use in passive-aggressive encounters to mean precisely the opposite. To detect how someone is truly feeling, you do need that whole annoying face-to-face -face contact thing that was all the rage prior to 1995, or you need one of these. The beeping screen and waggling finger of the lie detector, a scientific forensic frisking to check whether emotions match language. Well, that's the theory behind it. Sophie van der Zee is a lie detection research expert at the University of Cambridge. When people are lying, one of the reasons that their behaviour might change is because of the emotions they experience. One of the problems, however, is that not everyone feels the same emotion. So some people get more anxious or stressed or aroused, and that's what the polygraph is, is based on, physiological changes caused by stress and anxiety. Um, but other people actually even feel quite excited. If you can get away with a, an important lie, you might actually feel quite pleased or happy. And if you have a personality disorder such as psychopathy, you probably don't experience emotions the way most people do. Uh, which means you don't really have empathy for the person you're lying to, and therefore you might not feel that anxious or stressed or even guilty about lying, but you might feel quite pleased that you're getting away with it. So it, it really depends on both the person and the context of the lie. So those fleeting signals of inner torment you might detect on a polygraph, as I deny that I murdered Piers Morgan in a Luton lay-by last night, might indicate guilt, but they might also indicate innocence, depending on my emotional makeup. In fact, what the research tells us is that there aren't many emotional clues that a machine can reliably detect. Our pitch of our voice goes up a bit and we raise our chin. And there are some movement differences that I found in my own research very recently that liars move more than truth-tellers. But because these findings are not very strong, and quite a large group of the deception research community decided to focus more on verbal cues. Truth-tellers usually use more personal pronouns than liars do. Um, there's also some differences in the content, so the type of information that you mention. For example, truth-tellers feel okay with admitting that they don't know something or that they don't remember something, but a liar often feels that he needs to prove that he's telling the truth. There's also differences in what people say, the type of information that they give when they're lying. For example, liars don't really like to admit that they don't remember something or that they don't know something. They feel that they should, so they will come up with information on the spot to cover up. Of course, though, the person you lie to most, sadly, is you. I suspect that a huge 
part of our self-concept and our dealings with others are uh, explicable by the fact that we believe our own self-serving delusions the better to conceal them from human lie detectors, namely other people. That's one of the reasons why human beings are so prone to self-deception, why we believe our own lies. Because if you believe your own lie, then you can't give it away by subtle tells or emotional leakage. Other people may have the skill to spot a liar, yes, but surely someone has trained a computer to sniff out the sentiment behind textual language in the same way we might train a dog to sniff backpackers returning from Amsterdam. Well, yes, they have. Stephen Pullman. I'm a professor in computer science at Oxford and I work on sentiment analysis. The process of classifying text according to whether it expresses a positive or negative attitude towards the, the things mentioned in it. Sentiment analysis. Computers may not yet have feelings, but they can detect some of ours. Orwellian, eh? So what we're able to do uh, automatically is to detect which topics arouse the greatest levels of anger or uh, fear uh, and corresponding to which arouse, uh, you know, happiness or contentment or calmness. So we can associate uh, moods and, and emotional states with particular topics. You can certainly recognise what's called forward-looking language. For example, you might detect a rising amount of anger towards, say, the police or uh, some kind of figure of authority, and if that's amplified across, you know, many thousands of, of people in a particular area using social media, then that's something that you should probably look out for. The novel 1984 envisages a thought police capable of reading intentions through the mass surveillance of telescreens. And here we are, thanks very much, social media. But there are limitations because sentiment analysis is currently a bit dim when it comes to context. Cold beer is usually good, whereas cold coffee usually isn't. There are other cases where the person using the word will determine whether it's positive or negative. So, so for most of us, a word like sick is unambiguously negative, whereas uh, for teenage children, uh, a sick night out is a good night out. Because we've only got the text, we don't, for example, know what the views of the intended reader are. The limiting case also is, is sarcasm. You know, very often people will use extremely positive words, but with a negative connotation. And again, in the case where we're just processing text, we're missing a lot of the signal that, that you and I would use in conversation. No surprise there, then. Speech and listening beats text and reading hands down when it comes to the full Monte Fiori of deciphering emotional language, which is why this is a radio programme, not a newspaper article. But... In general, negative emotion overwhelms positive emotion. There are far more words for negative emotions than there are for positive emotions, reflecting the fact that there are a lot more ways for something to go wrong than for something to go right. So if I ask you, how much better could you feel than you are feeling right now? Well, you can imagine being in a slightly better mood. Uh, but if I say, how much worse could you feel than you f feel now? Again, there's no bottom to the range of negative emotion. And that is reflected in the language in the huge number of words that we have for states of anger, annoyance, rage, sadness, worry, fear, and so on. If Steven Pinker's right, and we can't just assume he always is, then it's no surprise that the miserablists win out. I mean, who doesn't like a moan? 
The eye-roll emoji may still only be a possible candidate in the emoticon family, but it is one of the most widely sought after by us all. And yet the whole business of linking words or hieroglyphs to feelings is or should be a delight. Shouldn't it? As if. <sighs> Thank goodness that's over with. Can someone get me a Lucasit, please? I'm feeling quite done in. <laughs> Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Sarah Cudden. It was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4. To hear more of Stephen talking to John Lydon, go to our website. Next week, Mr Fry will be talking about the weather.